Well, it was no contest. It was a, a rainy Saturday afternoon, like uh, as days on the Isle of Skye often are. Uh, and it was at Dunvegan Primary School, and I was in Primary 6, if I remember correctly. And we had just won a football match, 16-1. And to say that Uig uh, Primary School had been destroyed would be kind. And yet, not long after that, we were similarly crushed by uh, the boys from the capital, the mighty Portree Primary School. And uh, for some reason, that, that scoreline seems to have been erased from my memory. <laughs> and uh, it's a very silly illustration, isn't it? And yet, in a sense, it takes us right to the heart of what these chapters are all about. Exodus uh, 7 to 10, are, they're like a contest. They're a conflict. They're a conflict between the true God and, as I said last week, a wannabe God. And it's a contest, but it's no contest. Now, uh, some of you have been asking, how many sermons are you going to do on the plagues? You're preaching through the first part of Exodus. Uh, people, I think, are nervous that I might do uh, 10, that we might be here to Christmas. I'm not going to do 10, I'm going to do two. And this evening, it'll be a bit different to what we normally do. Normally, we work through a passage, don't we? Uh, this evening, I'm going to roam around a little bit, uh, kind of give you the bird's eye view on, on the plagues, as it were, and then next week, focus on the, the final plague. But here's the first thing, I, I guess, I want to say before we dive into uh, the plagues. Uh, it's to say this, the word plague is not really the right word. And these, as the scholars say, are not so much plagues, they're strikes. Uh, strikes. They're like blows. Uh, that's often the idea when the word plague is used. They're strikes and they're also signs. Uh, they're signs that point us to, to something. They're signs that point us to someone. And so tonight, just three things I want to uh, show you or uh, highlight as we look at these uh, plagues, these strikes, why they happen, how they happen, and what they teach us, why they happen, how they happen, and what that teaches us. First, why they happen. Why did God send, or turn rather, water into blood? Why did God send frogs, gnats, flies? Why did he kill livestock, cover people and animals in boils, send hail, locusts, cover land in darkness, kill Egypt's firstborn? It's quite a list, isn't it? Why did all of that happen? Well, to answer that question, we have to think about the, another question. Why did the exodus happen? What was the ultimate reason for the exodus? Look at chapter 7 and look with me at verses 15 to 16. Um, Moses is to go uh, out, isn't he, to speak to Pharaoh. Uh, it says, go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. Take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go. Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. Then later on in verse 17, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Simply, the, the plagues, the exodus, it happens because there is a God who is worthy of worship. That's what the whole book of Exodus is really all about. 
Uh, these plagues happen because God's people have been prevented from worshipping him. And that's serious. Worship matters to God. Where do we meet with God? Lots of people have answers to that question, don't they? They, they say in, in creation, when I'm in God's world, I feel God's presence. And many of us, where do I meet with God? We think of uh, being on our own with God. That's a good thing. We can read uh, his word, can't we? We can pray to him. But the most important form of worship is corporate worship. And God did not rescue his people out of slavery, if I can be provocative, so that they could all go around, wandering around, having, having their quiet times. God saved his people out of Egypt so that they could worship him, so they could worship with others. When we do that, we practice for heaven. When we hear one another sing, there's something about it, isn't there? And when we gather together like this, God is addressing us, God is speaking to us as a body of his people through his word. We exist to worship God. Uh, this week I began this uh, book by uh, a guy called Matthew Roberts, who's a minister in the, the IPC, Pride. It's called Pride Identity in the Worship of Self. Listen to the, the dedication that he writes at the beginning of this book. He says, to my parents, John and Marion Roberts, that's who he's dedicating it to, and what does he say about them? Who taught me that I was made to worship God. They taught me I was made to worship God. And kids this evening, young people, all of us, that is what you are for. That is why God made you. I was made to, to worship God. Who am I? I'm someone who was made to worship God. I think deep down all of us, we have a, a kind of longing to worship, don't we? Um, it's really obvious if you look at social media, Instagram, uh, we're obsessed with celebrities in our culture today, aren't we? Uh, we love to put up pictures of sunsets, all these amazing things. We love to say to somebody, did you see that goal? We love to praise and C.S. Lewis says that when we do that, when we share like that, it kind of completes the enjoyment of something like that. Worship matters. Worship matters. And in a world full of idols that, that fail to satisfy, you and I, we're made to worship someone greater than ourselves, someone bigger than ourselves. God is the source of all life and goodness and joy. And he's made us to be turned out, turned away from ourselves, turned to, to gaze at him. And I brought this uh, book in with me. I, I, you're probably not going to be able to see this uh, if you're at the back. But look at the cover of this book. Uh, the cover of the book is, is a part of a painting by a man called John William Waterhouse. And it's uh, of a figure called Narcissus. And he's captivated by himself, the, the myth, uh, mythology says. In the story, he was told, you'll live to an old age if you do not look at yourself. And yet he looked at his own reflection until he died. And that says so much about human nature, doesn't it? Sin is man turned in on himself. And the plagues happen to free God's people from that kind of thinking, from that kind of attitude. They happen to free them to worship. 
And it's the same for us tonight. We're saved for God's glory. Our chief end is to glorify God, to enjoy him forever, and to worship him. Two former ministers of mine, two friends of mine, they've preached sermon series on all the different elements of a worship service, from the call to worship all the way to the benediction. So it's a minister's dream, isn't it, to preach on preaching, to preach on the confession of faith, to preach on singing. But just listen to uh, the call to worship again. I'll read it in a moment. The call to worship is not just a token gesture at the beginning of a service. Um, Andy, Chris, or I, we don't just read words after we've given the notices because we think it's uh, a nice thing to do, words that will encourage you. No, that's not what's happening. God is summoning us. Turn my mic off. A dog once barked in a sermon that I was preaching. That was a bit more dramatic than that. God is summoning us to worship. Listen to this. Listen to our call to worship from this evening. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. That's a summons, isn't it? That's not do this if you feel like it, feel like it. It's not wait till you feel like it. I think we, we make a mistake when we think that way. We, we can think the only worship God would be interested in is a kind of worship where I really, really, really feel like worshiping him. And the problem is that if I wait till I feel like worshipping, I'll never worship. And I, I need to be told to worship. I need to be told to worship by God. And in a sense, that's why the plagues happened. They happened so that God's people might be free to worship him. I think during COVID, we all realized, didn't we, there's something different about corporate worship. And if you think about COVID, there was a kind of plague, wasn't there? It certainly felt like that in the early days. The kind of plague and worship stopped. And this is the opposite. Plagues happen here. Plagues happen so worship can happen. And that means, friends, there's nothing more important in our week than gathering together to worship God. Why they happen. Second, how they happen. These plagues, they they happen over time. If you look at the very last verse in chapter 7, look at it with me. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. And if you read through all these passages, we we stopped at the end of uh, the third plague, didn't we? But if you read through all the plagues, you'll see there's gaps between them. And that teaches us something. God was willing to be gracious to Pharaoh. He was willing to be gracious to the, to the Egyptians. God gave them chances. And at different points, it seems like Pharaoh is about to repent. So in the second plague, uh, the frogs come, don't they? Look at uh, chapter 8, verse 8. 
Um, he says, Pharaoh, to Moses and Aaron, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Seems like Pharaoh's had a kind of change of heart, doesn't it? Moses and Aaron do that for him. And yet look at chapter 8 and verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them. So Pharaoh doesn't want to repent. Pharaoh wants relief. And human beings are like that, aren't we? These plagues, they happen over time. They happen also very deliberately. Um, in the past, I don't know if this is still the case, if you were um, taking out insurance, there would be a clause in the insurance that referred to acts of God. And acts of God, what are they? There are things like lightning, uh, terrible storm damage, that kind of thing. And people who didn't believe in God would be very happy to claim, wouldn't they, the money that they were owed if they were the victim of an act of God. And I think it's easy to think that these plagues, they're kind of ten random acts of God. It's easy to think that it doesn't really matter what order they came in or what actually happened. And yet they are like the miracles of Jesus. They're deliberate. They're signs. Lots of people have seen patterns here. If you look at chapter 7 and verse uh, 15, look at what it says. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. Then if you look at chapter 8 and verse 20, we see the same thing again. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. Then chapter 9 and verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning. And what people have seen here as they've studied these plagues is basically three cycles of three. Three cycles of three and then a tenth plague, a final plague. So these plagues, they happen over time, they happen deliberately, and yet within them there seems to be a kind of pattern. Within the pattern there seems to be a kind of progression. Look at the first three plagues. We're not going to go into uh, all the details of them, but the first three plagues, their focus, can you see, on water and on ground. So we have the Nile being turned into blood, we have frogs, and then we have gnats. Then the, the second set of three, we have, uh, they're kind of focused more on living flesh. We have flies that would kind of come onto people. We have livestock that are uh, killed. And then we have boils on skin. And then the final set of three, we, we move up into the air, don't we? We've got hail. And then we've got locusts. And then we've got darkness. And then lots of people have seen uh, connections here. They've seen that there's progression here. I mentioned the British Museum last week. If you go there, if you study uh, the Egyptian exhibition there, you'll learn that the Egyptians had different gods that were associated with all these different realms, the realms of water, the realms of land, the realms of air. And so if you think about the plagues, the point is really obvious, isn't it? The plagues were showing that there is one Lord of all these things. There is one Lord of sea and sky and everything in between. Nothing is outside of his control. 
Listen to uh, Alistair Roberts and Andrew Wilson as they, they write about this. They say this, if the ancient world were a three-story house, the earth, the waters beneath, the heavens above, what God did was God brought destruction to each story and humiliated the deities that governed them. The Egyptian gods were ferreted out. They were removed from the house like a pest or an infestation from the cellar to the rafter. That's what God was doing as he sent these plagues. He was going after these gods. He was going after the damage that they had done to this people. We often sing Psalm 24 at St. Peter's, don't we? How does it begin? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And these plagues were demonstrating that. And you see that if you look at chapter 9, verse 27, the seventh plague, hail and fire, so awful that Pharaoh pleads with Moses and Aaron, this time I have sinned, the Lord is in the right, I and my people are in the wrong. Verse 29, the thunder will cease, there'll be no more hail, and here's the reason, so that you may know, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Friends, these plagues were happening to make an impression on this man. They were teaching him something. They were teaching him that this world is God's world. They were showing him that it's not governed by chance or fate or evil forces. They were showing him, they were showing us that it's in God's hands. God was saying through Moses, let me teach you, Pharaoh, who is in charge around here, who is in control. This is why the disciples, isn't it? They were so amazed in the passage that Andy preached from this morning, the man in the boat had the storm in his hand. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And that makes him worthy of praise. So why they happen so God will be glorified. How they happen over time, very deliberately. Lastly, what they teach. What these plagues teach. Now here we're thinking not about the reason for the plagues or the pattern of the plagues. We're thinking about the meaning of the plagues. And we've touched on some of them already, but I want to pick out four big themes. This is not a nine-point sermon. It's a, a six-point sermon in disguise. Okay, the signs, these plagues, these strikes, they point somewhere, they point to someone, and they point to God. And I think they show us, they speak to us about four things. They speak to us about the knowledge of God, they speak to us about the power of God. They speak to us about the rejection of God. And they speak to us about the protection of God. Firstly, the knowledge of God. Last week we heard Pharaoh say these words. When Moses and Aaron came to him, he said, Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? And as he experiences these plagues, Pharaoh finds out the answer to that question, doesn't he? And there's a repeated idea in the plagues. We hear it for the first time in chapter 7, verse 17. By this you shall know. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. It's there when the hail stops, isn't it? So that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. 
It's there in chapter 9 as well, verse 14. So that you may know there's no, there is none like me in all the earth. That's why these plagues are happening. See, I think it was uh, J.I. Packer who said, in the Bible, God preaches God to us. And it's happening here. In these plagues, God is making himself known. God is showing Pharaoh there is no one like him. But what I love is that it's not just Pharaoh he wants to show that to. No, come with me to chapter 10 and look at the eighth plague. And what's really clear here is that God, as he brings these plagues, these strikes on Pharaoh, God is the next generation of Israel in view. Moses is to go to Pharaoh again so that more signs will take place. But what is the reason, verse 2, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them? that you may know that I am the Lord. Now we're going to see this uh, next week as we think about the final plague, as we think about the Passover meal and all that symbolized and meant. But it's really clear here, God has the next generations in view. God cares about sons and grandsons knowing about this. And we see this all through the Old Testament, don't we? The knowledge of God is to be shared with little ones. It's to be shared with children. And I think even knowledge of God, that might be a little bit uh, frightening. How I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, the, the holiness of God, the wrath of God. These are things we need to speak to children about, aren't they? Now, I know um, as a parent uh, that this can be really difficult. I've I've not met the person who would say of their teaching of their children, you know, I've nailed that. I've got that down. But friends, our kids, they're growing up in a culture where they are being catechized. Every day our children, they're being told what to think. They're being told how to think. They're being told what to believe. And you and I, we've got a responsibility to point them to God, haven't we? We want them to know lots of stories, but as someone said, we want them to know the stories of the Bible more than any of those stories, don't we? And so tonight, kids, you can know God. You can know God now. You don't need to wait uh, till you're older. You can know him, the knowledge of God. Secondly, the power of God. The power of God. And we've touched on this a little bit already. One of the things the plague show is the limits of human power. Somehow, I don't know how, the magicians, they're able to copy the first few plagues, aren't they? And yet that stops by number three. Look at chapter 8, verse 18. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats. I don't know why they'd want to do that. But they couldn't. Look what they say, or listen to what they say to Pharaoh in chapter 8, verse 19. This is the finger of God. See the same thing in plague 6. God sends boils. And yet, chapter 9, verse 11, the magicians can't stand before Moses. 
And with every blow, with every strike, what God is doing, he's weakening Pharaoh. He's humbling him. He's bringing him to his knees. This is all part of God's plan. Pharaoh is exalting himself. And yet God has raised him up. God is making an example of him so that his name will be proclaimed in all the earth. Friends, human power has limits. God is the one who is all-powerful. I think it's very easy for us to forget that, isn't it? When we look around, when we read the news. When one of the boys was born, we were given uh, a little uh, mini banner thing. Um, had a verse from Psalm 46 that I'm sure we all know, Be still and know that I am God. And many of us have seen kind of calendars with uh, that verse, won't we? And yet if you read that psalm, that little phrase, be still and know that I am God, it's much more like silence. Silence. Because what does the next verse say? I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. God is speaking. And these plagues, they show us the power of God. The Eagle's Nest, it was a mountaintop retreat. It was presented to Adolf Hitler on his 50th birthday. It was designed as a place where he could entertain his guests, where he could bask in his success. And yet at the end of World War II, Allied troops, they raced to the top of the mountain. They stormed it. If you've watched Band of Brothers, you'll know the scene. Hitler was dead. But the troops, they they covered the walls with graffiti. They smashed off shards of marble. And they took them home as souvenirs. And today, it's a cafe. It's a beer garden. And it's a reminder that human power has limits. Even a man who tried to conquer the world can be toppled. And yet Jesus is the one who will reign forever. The knowledge of God, the power of God... Thirdly, the rejection of God. The rejection of God. I think these plagues, they show us what rejection of God looks like. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He sees God do incredible things, and yet he turns away from God. And a few weeks ago, I told you that there was, there was three words that are associated with this idea of hardening. And the first word, it has to to do with the idea of someone being strengthened to do something they want to do. That's what happened to Pharaoh. He's not a puppet. The second word, it's used in chapter 7, verse 3. It really means stubborn. But there's another word. It's another word that is used to speak of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, and it means heavy heavy. Pharaoh's heart became heavy. And Moses' tongue is described as heavy. That can, uh, that was because he struggled to speak, wasn't it? It's not quite what's meant here. And each time that word heavy is used, it comes after Pharaoh has said he is going to let the people go. It looks like Pharaoh is going to bend, and then he refuses to bend. His heart becomes heavy. His heart becomes more and more and more hardened. 
And friends, it's really serious. The more we reject God's voice, the more trouble we get into. And if we repeatedly reject God, if we stop listening to God, then we do reach a point of no return. Hearts become hardened, and it is a fearful thing, isn't it, to fall into the hands of the living God. The plague shows that. Maybe tonight you're very conscious of sin. Well, that's not always a bad thing, is it? Because that can make you run to God. And that leads us to the fourth thing, the protection of God. The protection of God. As God strikes, God also shields. As his judgment falls, he protects his own. And this is a pattern that runs through Scripture. Think of the story of Rahab, judgment on Jericho, and yet Rahab is saved from that judgment. A a distinction is made if you read these chapters, and we're going to see more of it next time. But it starts here. Look at chapter 8, and look at verse 22. You're being very patient this evening as we jump around. Look at chapter 8, verse 22. On that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. See, as God strikes Egypt, he shields Israel. It's the same with the fifth plague. All the Egyptian livestock die, but chapter 9, verse 6, none of Israel's livestock die. God's people are saved from the hail. But I think my favorite is the ninth plague. Darkness falls, and for three days the Egyptians can't see anything. But chapter 10, verse 23, all the people of Israel had light where they lived. And God is making a distinction. And we actually sang about that distinction before this sermon, Psalm 1. Because there are only two types of people in the world. There are those who know God, and there are those who don't know God. There are those who love God's Word, and there are those who hate God's Word. And it is binary. And you and I, we don't like that today, do we? We we love middle ways. And yet Jesus is exclusive, and Jesus is divisive, and Jesus is Lord, he is king, and he rules. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on the earth. There's a verse for Christmas. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Friends, Jesus divides. Jesus brings conflict. Jesus divides families and homes. And as these plagues happen, God is making a distinction. Jesus divides. Jesus brings conflict. Jesus is coming back. See, the end of last week's sermon, I went to Revelation 21, and I want to close by going to Revelation again and chapter 16. See, the, the book of Exodus has got lots of plagues, and so does the book of Revelation. 
As you're turning to chapter 16, you'll know there are seven churches in Revelation, there are seven seals, there are seven trumpets. And in Revelation chapter 16, there are seven bowls of God's wrath. They're often called plagues. And before Christ's return, before the new creation that we love to read about in chapter 21, chapter 22, God's judgment falls. And lots of people have seen connections between the plagues in in Egypt and the plagues here. As the first bowl is poured, look what happens in verse 2. There's painful sores. In verses 3 and 4, water turns to blood. In verse 10, a kingdom is plunged into darkness. And then in verse 21, great hailstones fall. These are, these are pictures of God's judgment on those outside of Christ. And so, friends, we need to know this evening that a storm is coming. Now, where's when you're in a storm? There's one place to be safe in a storm, isn't there? And it's the eye of the storm. And so tonight, I want, I want you to let these nine strikes, I want you to let them lead you to Jesus. I want you to think about the one who was struck for you. And I want to say, don't run from him run to him. And as you hide, sing to him. And maybe sing these words, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let's pray together.